This is Thinky Lulu Says, an irregular podcast about contemporary theater. My name is Brian Herrera, and I'm Stinky Lulu. I'm also a theater professor, and I see a lot of shows, and Stinky Lulu Says is the place where I get my say about what I see. In this installment, Stinky Lulu has something to say about 16 plays in 30 days and then some, a.k.a. the stuff I saw in June 2016. So here, instead of doing what I normally do, which is to discuss one play for the entirety of an episode's 10 to 12 minutes, I'm going to do something a little bit more ambitious and reflect on a full month's worth of theater going, week by week. I'm not sure whether it'll work or it'll just be as exhausting as it is exhausted. I don't know. But we're still early in this Stinky Lulu Says experiment, so let's just see what happens, shall we? So, here we go. 16 plays in 30 days and then some, a.k.a. the stuff I saw in June 2016. Week 1. A cavalcade of dramatic master builders, Strindberg and Ibsen, Hudes and Morisot, Albie, Fornes and Kennedy, not to mention a wild hare, and Tevye too. The first week of June had me hit the ground running, with seven plays in eight days. Or, to be more precise, nine plays in seven productions seen over eight days. It could have been eight productions had I not missed my last chance to catch Every Angel is Brutal by Julia Jarko, directed by Knud Adams, the first play presented as part of Club Thumb's annual Summer Works Festival at the Wild Project in New York City. But time is fleeting, especially when one's every trip to New York City to catch a play obliges a four-hour round-trip commute, whether by bus, train, or private vehicle. So, yeah, I couldn't quite squeeze eight shows in in eight days, but still, what was perhaps most remarkable about this first week of June is that every single one of the seven productions I did see was the work of a master playwright. Number one, Daphne's Dive by Chiara Alegria Hudes, directed by Thomas Kale at Signature Theatre, New York City, which I've discussed at some length in a previous podcast, and which I think about still. I find that I think especially of the work of Vanessa Aspiaga, Samira Wiley, and Daphne Rubin Vega portraying complex women in complicated relationship with each other. And I find that I do hope my wish that Daphne's dive and its complicated women of color-centric ensemble might hint at the direction that Houdis' work takes during her residency at Signature over the next few years. I do have my fingers crossed. After seeing a Wednesday matinee of Daphne's Dive at Signature, I stuck around the building to catch that evening's presentation of what is my number two, The Signature Plays, a staging of three legendary plays, a staging of three legendary short plays by three of the most influential writers to emerge from the off-Broadway movement of the 1960s. The Signature Plays were The Sandbox by Edward Albee from 1959, Drowning by Maria Irena Fornes from 1986, and Funny House of the Negro by Ad. Adrian Kennedy from 1964. These relatively rarely staged three plays were each lavishly directed by Lila Neugebauer as a suite of sorts. Each play did stand on its own merits. Albie's satiric and melancholy riff on death's embarrassing inevitability, Fornes's breath-squeezing evocation of desire and the pain of its thwarting, Kennedy's intimately interior portrait of a psyche collapsed under the accumulated pressure of casual racism, 
Each play was beautifully realized, but each was also kept at a somewhat assiduous remove from the other, which also placed each play at an odd remove from itself. I worried that these plays and this perhaps over-directed production had become regarded as museum pieces, and I craved a greater sense of immediacy and urgency and wondered at what might have been a thrilling return to these nearly forgotten masterworks by master writers. The plays did sing pretty gloriously, but something, I'm not sure what, about them being placed in production together didn't quite gel. After the almost baroque staging of the signature plays, I was glad the following evening to plunge into the meticulous and at least seemingly realistic narrative of my number three, Skeleton Crew, by Dominique Morisot, directed by Ruben Santiago Hudson at New York's Atlantic Theatre Company, which I've also discussed on a previous podcast, and which, quite frankly, I haven't thought much about since, except to be reminded that I'm interested to see more of Morisot's work. My numbers four and five for June took me to Brooklyn for two Scandinavian classics presented in repertory. The Doll's House by Henrik Ibsen, using a translation by Thornton Wilder, and The Father by August Strindberg, in a new English version by David Grieg. Both productions were directed by Aaron Arbus and presented in repertory for Theater for a New Audience at Brooklyn's Polanski Shakespeare Center. I found much to praise in this pairing. I delighted in the Thornton Wilder version of Doll's House, which reminded me that the twistings and turnings of the 19th century well-made play provide the foundation for all those crazy situations that give situation comedy its name. And the David Gregg treatment of the father amplified Strindberg's fundamental misogyny in a viscerally contemporary way. I thought Maggie Lacey's Nora was transcendent and found John Douglas Thompson's performance as the captain and the father gut-punchingly tragic. The production was top tier. The set, a clever nesting puzzle of a repertory stage, was gorgeous. The cast, superb. But, yeah, this expertly executed pairing confirmed my general disinclination toward restagings of the Western canon. I don't know if it's just that I've been around the theater-going block too many times, or that I'm horribly provincial in my preference for contemporary American work, or if all those college courses I took on Ibsen, Strindberg, Bergman, and Munch ruined me forever for this Nordic legacy stuff. But as good as these productions were, they just weren't for me. The same could not be said about my number six. Fiddler on the Roof, directed by Bartlett Sher at a Broadway theater in New York City, which I just loved. I mean, I'd never seen a full production of Fiddler, and I'm thrilled that this one, the first Broadway production to feature a Latino who happens to also be Jewish in the role of Tevia, that this Fiddler was my first felt perfect. Bartlett Sher's staging of this deservedly canonical musical does what Sher's stagings do. He trusts the work enough to trust that there are new things to be found in it. This Fiddler then feels simultaneously classic and contemporary which is no easy thing, and which, to my mind at least, derives in no small part from Danny Burstein's work in the role of Tevye. Burstein's Tevye is smaller, perhaps, than most. He's neither a big guy nor an especially imposing presence. But what he does convey, with force and with power, is that Tevye is a fundamentally good guy. A guy everyone likes for a reason. A guy capable of seeing what is good in others. Burstein's is a stirring performance, surrounded by a kick-ass cast, a thrilling new choreography by Hofa Schechter. And I must say, I loved that women danced as men in the ensemble here. I saw a Wednesday matinee with no fewer than three groups arriving by van or bus from suburban Jewish senior centers, as well as a cohort of young people visiting from Israel seated immediately in front of me. So being in that theater, especially listening to the murmurs and buzzes, especially during those quiet interstitial moments the part sure is so fond of, I mean, the man is not one to rush a transition. Being in that theater or watching that show with that audience was a full, rich, celebratory, and poignant experience that I won't soon forget. 
and it is a production that is definitely worth seeing if you can. By way of stark contrast, that very evening had me at my number seven, The Judas Kiss by David Hare, directed by Neil Armfeld at BAM's Harvey Theater in Brooklyn. Now, this is a revival of a nearly 20-year-old thought exercise of a play by David Hare, and the reason for this revival is truly Rupert Everett, who is nearly unrecognizable under a fat suit and prosthetic makeup, as he becomes Oscar Wilde at two junctures in Wilde's late career exile, the moment right before Wilde is jailed when he tries to find a last moment of refuge in a London hotel, and in those extended moments not long after he is released from jail, when Wilde finds himself effectively abandoned in an Italian coastal villa. Everett's performance was masterful, and Hare's play offers a compelling portrait of Wilde as a man who, once unclosed, it could not allow himself to exceed to the conventions of propriety that might have maintained his privilege. It was a lovely production, full to brimming with naked male beauty, but it was really the play's opening scenes, wherein Hare charts the myriad ways that illicit sexuality found expression within the many nooks and crannies of English society that I found most compelling, and indeed almost more interesting than Wilde, even with Everett's masterful performance. It was a smart, measured, and thoughtful performance of, a, of an interesting play, definitely stuff to look at and to think about. And that brings us to the end of week one and directly to week two. When, on the ninth day of June, Stinky Lulu rested, not to see any more theater for a whole week, unless you count the Tony Awards, which, I have to say, was easily the most satisfying and entertaining Tony Award broadcast of this century. I'm pleased to also say that having offered my Tony wish list in the last episode of this podcast, I was very pleased that most of those wishes came true. But of all the Tony highlights, James Corden's blazingly good opening numbers, Cynthia Erivo's incredible performance, Lin-Manuel Miranda's his love is love is love speech, that moment when Corden's camera crew collided with his crabby latecomers in the lobby. Of all the great moments from this broadcast, the one I treasure most is, if you have not seen it, please Google 70th Annual Tony Awards Law and Order and Broadway's Rich History, in which you can witness two of my most favorite cultural obsessions, the Tony Awards and Law and Order, collide in a way that makes me just giddy every time I think about it. Honestly, I just want someone to turn that bit, Broadway stars and all all their Law and Order appearances. I just want that to become a YouTube series. It could go on and on and on delightfully forever. I mean, for reals, I want to see that. So after a brief week-long respite of no theater going, if you can believe it, it was back to the aisles for week number three. My week of ambivalent responses to very good work. Number eight, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, written by Simon Stevens, based on the novel by Mark Haddon, directed by Marianne Elliott at the Ethel Barrymore Theater in New York City. Based on my social media feed, especially responses to my posting of the picture of the program when I saw the show, people I love just love this play. And let's just say that upon finally seeing the Broadway production of this dazzlingly designed, gloriously staged, widely acclaimed play, I did not join that consensus. I, I love the choreography. Uh, it's a choreography of the sort usually seen in modern or contemporary dance, and it's used here dramaturgically, both as a storytelling device and as a way to convey complicated states of emotional experience and being. Now, the choreography was thrilling, and I wish more non-musical plays thought to use movement in such ambitious and adventurous ways. And Marianne Elliott's production leverages the power of theatrical spectacle to tell a complicated conceptual story in an emotionally immediate way. But even so, I mostly now found myself doubting the play, whether this was an autism tale comfortingly packaged for neurotypical people. I'm almost annoyed by my own response, but that's what it was. 
So as thrilling as I found the theatrical apparatus, I ultimately found myself not trusting the play. But again, if my social media feed is any indication, I might be just nearly alone in this feeling. And being alone on social media is sorta exactly the terrain of my number nine, seen backslash by everyone, a five on a match production developed with and directed by Kristen Martin, presented at New York City's Here Art Center. Now this was a devised ensemble performance that approached two topics I find really fascinating, collage as theatrical technique and the intimate vocabularies of social media. Five on a Match is a relatively new ensemble, a collective of performers, this is their language, quote, a collective of performers making original work that explores what it means to be a human being in the 21st century. And this production, seen backslash by everyone, uses social media as both raw material and as landscape to create a looping non-narrative portrait compiled from fragments posted from various social media platforms to theatricalize uh, a portrait of the experience of transition, loss, and grief as experienced in this, our social media era. Uh, staged in a space that looked like a barn, but which also felt like a portal of sorts between real life and whatever it is that might be beyond the real of life, seen backslash by everyone really went at what I find compelling and confounding about both collage as a theatrical technique and social media as a way to communicate. Because both collage and social media remind us of our reliance on the slipperiness of context to make sense of an ever more fragmented world. How we give meaning to everything we see based on our understanding of its context. Seen backslash Backslash by everyone dives into the paradox of this, how social media removes context from intimacy. And though the production definitely had its limits, especially in how it handled or didn't really handle the hunger of a theatrical audience, especially when steeped in the Western dramaturgical tradition, the hunger most audiences have for making plot, character, and story out of the fragments embodied before them, though I don't think I found the performance itself especially satisfying. Between the compelling aesthetic and social questions raised, along with captivating performances throughout, especially by Matthew Cohn, who I'd never seen before, and by Meg McCary, of whom I've been a fan for nearly 30 years, the actors were especially deft in leveraging a naturalistic acting style in service of the production's more experimental modality. All of which is to say, I left very curious to see what Five on a Match does next. I was similarly of multiple minds about number 10, Peer Gint by Henrik Ibsen, as adapted and directed by John Doyle at New York City's classic stage. I caught this one just under the wire at its closing performance. Doyle's Peer Gint is an elegant distillation of Ibsen's sprawling epic. As is often his way, Doyle's production looks to the skill of the actor rather than, say, the apparatus of the production or the elevation of the language to chart an audience's course through a sprawling tale. Doyle's powerhouse ensemble, which includes the lights of veteran faves like Dylan Baker and Becky Ann Baker. I'm shocked that I did not know that these two troopers have been married for almost 30 years. So the Bakers, alongside impressive upstarts like Quincy Tyler Bernstein, along with Doyle's Crackerjack design team, including my boss and longtime Doyle collaborator Jane Cox, has designed lights. Together, Doyle and his collaborators create a world that anchors but doesn't quite explain the cluelessness and arrogance of Pierre Gint, played here with athletic charisma by Gabriel Ebert. In Doyle's version, Pierre Gint's actions somehow come to make sense, which is by turns haunting, horrifying, and heartbreaking. I do hope Doyle's adaptation gets published and licensed, as it would, I think, be a welcome option for those interested in teaching or staging this fascinating, complicated play. But as good as it was, Doyle's production didn't disabuse me of my disinclination to revisitations of the canon, which is perhaps why it proved so refreshing to leave Pier Gint and head downtown to catch number 11, The Tomb of King Tot by Olivia Dufault, 
uh, directed by Portia Krieger as part of Club Thumb's Summerworks Festival at the Wild Project in New York's Lower East Side. I buy a pass for Summerworks every year, and even though I'm so, I always seem to miss one, sorry, every angel is brutal, I am always glad for the opportunity to see the inventive, funny, and moving plays that would likely never be staged anywhere else but by Club Thumb. Plays like The Tomb of King Tot a moving, haunting, and hilarious portrait of grief's many devastations. The play tells the story of Jane, a cartoonist who's struggling to balance the demands of producing a jokey comic strip about an incorrigible toddler pharaoh, King Tot, and his besieged manservant. Jane's trying to produce this script while also trying to sustain her relationship with her sensitive new age guy of a partner and her furiously rebellious teen daughter. When Jane's daughter dies in what may or may not have been a suicide, the news comes right as Jane is nominated for a major cartooning prize, and almost immediately her real life and her cartoon worlds begin to commingle and collide in devastatingly funny ways. It's a beautiful, poignant play, amplified by thrilling, pitch-perfect serial comic performances, especially from Nick Chosky as Jane's boyfriend and Carmen Hurley as Jane's rival cartoonist, that I doubt you could see produced as masterfully as its summer works. I'm not sure the play felt fully realized, but the ride through it was definitely worth it, as it always is with Club Thumb. So even though that, even though King Tot was the last show I saw in my week three, the week wasn't exactly over because the next night I did schlep into the city to participate in an event celebrating the recent publication of The Javier Plays by Carlos Murillo. Because I was to be on a panel discussion of Carlos's work, I had the obligation and opportunity to read the book, and I'm so glad I did. What might have been a simple collection of three quite compelling plays becomes something much more in this beautifully executed edition from a really interesting independent publisher called 53rd State Press. Because in this book, Moreno's plays are embedded within a collection of found documents and commentaries, which together tease at the limits of truth and, and theory and fantasy. And and because Murillo's plays themselves tend to make poetry out of the fragments of the everyday, with each play feeling like a mixtape where the familiar melds with the incongruous to build a fresh and immediate intimacy, this collection of materials around the plays makes the experience of reading Murillo's trilogy as much of a, an experience of literary fiction as it is one of reading dramatic literature. So if you like literary metafiction, or if you just want to read some really cool mind-bending plays, get your your hands on the Javier plays by Carlos Murillo from 53rd State Press. I suspect you'll be as fascinated as I. And so we finally arrive to week four, where I was reminded again and again and again just why I go see so many shows. This proved to be a quite thrilling week of theater going, and it began as I got to be a fly on the wall and listen in on a workshop table reading of Magdalia Cruz's translation of Macbeth commissioned by Oregon Shakespeare Festival's Play On Initiative. I can't really say much more about this reading other than, wow! OSF's Play on Initiative, which has commissioned 36 playwright dramaturg teams to develop contemporary language translations of 39 plays attributed to Shakespeare, it has stirred its more than its share of controversy. But I gotta say, if Migdalia's contemporary language translation of the Scottish play is any indication of what Play on is going to yield, Shakespeare fans as well as fans of contemporary drama are in for all kinds of treats. Since it's been announced, and based solely on my intuition, I've been a champion of the Play on Initiative, and I'm, but now, having heard Cruise and Play On come together again. Wow, this Play On thing could be seriously cool. From the gutsy goriness of Cruz's reading, I went to a very different but just as thrilling theatrical world with my number 12, Indian Summer by Gregory Stephen Moss, directed by Carolyn Cantor at Playwrights Horizons. This is a deceptively simple play set on a Rhode Island beach as the summer season begins its taunting departure. 
and it is as emotionally accessible as a well-written young adult novel, which makes it both easy to fall in love with and I think easy to mistake for a simple teen romantic comedy. The plot is basically a version of Danny and Sandy before they meet again at Rydell. But in this production, the simplicity of Moss's play was allowed to bloom into a delicately crafted and deeply moving portrait of four wildly different characters, each experiencing the crisis of becoming a new version of themselves. It was a formidable cast, featuring the always winning Joe Tippett, who I'd seen just two nights before reading from Murillo's Javier plays. But really, this constellation of for exceptional performances is anchored by the frankly extraordinary Elise Keebler. I mean, if this performance is any indication, Elise Keebler might just end up being the Sarah Paulson of her generation. I mean, her work and the work of the, the work of this ensemble made this production one of the biggest and most endearing surprises of the summer so far. Also, strangely endearing, if much more discombobulating, was my number 13, which was Assassins by Stephen Sondheim and James Lampine, directed by Tatiana Pandiani at Princeton Summer Theatre in Princeton, New Jersey. Now, this perverse and unsettling show just might be my favorite Sondheim musical. And this production, by grim coincidence, happened to open just a few days after the massacre in Orlando, Florida. But this accident of timing, which actually led the Princeton Summer Theater to contemplate canceling the show, ended up amplifying this particular musical's peculiar prescience and its stubbornly enduring topicality. Because honestly, the experience of having a dozen people point guns at you, which is part of Assassin's that experience has always been unnerving, and watching it directed here by Pandiani with uniformly excellent performances from a youngish cast, the majority of whom are recent Princeton grads, I was especially stirred by the musical's reminder that self-aggrandizing gun violence endures as another American anthem, as a guiding fact of American history. Sadly, for all its weirdness, Assassins felt strangely perfect for the week of and after Orlando. And just as strangely timely was my number 14, Hades Town by Anais Mitchell, as directed by and developed with Rachel Chavkin at New York Theatre Workshop in New York City. Hades Town is one of the breakout sensations in New York this summer. It's in a musical event. Many people call it a musical, but I'm sort of loath to call it a musical. I think it feels like more like music theatre. Um, because really, it feels more like an immersive concert with a set and a storyline. But Town does offer an enthralling retelling of one of the most oft-told tales, the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. I mean, it's, it's great. It's a kind of charismatic and hugely talented cast of actor-musicians. There are great songs, gloriously sung. There's a few heart-stopping dramatic moments. I mean, you've got to really give it to any telling of a myth that gets you, or gets me, actually believing and hoping that this time it might just end differently. I ended up, in a way that I haven't quite puzzled through, I ended up not being as rapturous about Hades Town as everyone else seems to be. I mean, but seriously, along with Broadway's Bright Star, it's great to hear music this good sung and acted so well in a theatrical setting. And please, can we just have Amber Gray have her choice of parts in everything or anything? Whatever she wants to do, let Amber Gray do it. I do have a feeling that Hadestown will have a significant future. And honestly, I do wonder if in Hadestown, we might just be witnessing one of the futures of American music theater. Another show that made me sort of want to say, can't just every show do it this way, was another show I caught just under the wire at its final performance, my number 15, I Remember Mama by John Van Druten, a restaging of the acclaimed 2014 Transport Group production directed by Jack Cummings III, as presented at Two River Theater in Red Bank, New Jersey. 
Now, this production takes on an old chestnut of a sentimental American drama in a startling and stirring way. It's a simple but bold casting conceit. Having ten actors, a diverse group of women, all over 60, take on the 20 or so roles of the 1944 play, presented on a simple stage which would be empty were it not so crowded with ten complete dining room sets, one for each actor, and each table piled with different things, books or photographs or teacups or whatever. The production eschews naturalistic illusion while also amplifying the emotional intensity that would be the undercurrent to realism. It was quite simply a thrilling theatrical experience to see these veteran stage actors just have the chance to really show off their skill. I mean, the publicity materials claim that between them, these 10 actors had more than 500 years of combined professional stage experience. Aside from the extraordinary Barbara Andres, who played Mama, and Mia Katebach, who played narrator Katrin, each of the other eight actors played two or more roles. And for a supporting actress geek like myself, it was beyond thrilling to see the likes of Lynn Cohen, who you might know as Magda on Sex in the City, uh, alongside Louise Sorrell, perhaps the master of comedic soap villainy, alongside Dale Sewells, the penis snipper on Orange is the New Black, not to mention Rita Gardner, the original Louisa in the original production of The Fantastics. But ultimately, I, I get excited watching exciting actors on stage. I love watching these people I haven't had a chance to see in person before. But the craziest part was this casting conceit totally worked. It was powerful, it was evocative, it was moving, I cried three times, and I left the theater wanting there to be a new rule that every worthwhile mid-century American play had to have a production like this before any others could proceed. It was truly an exhilarating testament to, the, to what can happen when you tap into an underutilized store of theatrical skill. I'm only sorry that this production didn't have an open-ended run, because I'd like to see it again, and because, like Paula Vogel's Indecent, it just doesn't get much better than this. Which brings me to my number 16. And my number 16 might have been Buran Theater's Posh Las Saudades, for which I had tickets but not the Staminets to schlep into town on a Monday night. So I missed this one-night-only event presented at Ars Nova by Buran Theater, which happens to be one of the most interesting and iconoclastic upstart theater companies I know. Helmed by the irreverent and the indefatigable Adam Burnett, Buran's work is always worth seeing, and I am disappointed that I missed this one. So my actual number 16 turned out to be Dumacho, a play with songs by Ethan Lipton directed by Lee Silverman as part of Club Thumb's Summer Works Festival at the Wild Project in New York City. This is an emphatically ridiculous goof of a play, if you can call a mashup of the canonical mid-century western and your standard-issued alien menace zombie infestation tale put in service of a super-smart allegory of the war on terror a goof. But then again, how could you not call a show that has a chorus of singing cactus puppets? How could you not call it a goof? Too much it was fun, funny, and unsettling all at once, and it reminded me of what I love so love so about seeing shows at Club Dumb Summer Works, just how much talent they squeeze onto that tiny pocket of an East Village stage. I'm not sure whether Too Macho will have a life beyond this production, though I wish it could, because honestly, I don't know that I've seen a more captivating and compelling theatrical meditation on how ubiquitous episodes of violence and violation have become in our everyday lives in the 21st century. It really is one of the more sophisticated allegories of terrorism I've encountered, and um, I'm, and I, I have a feeling it's gotten under my skin in a way that I'll continue to think about for some time. 
And that's what Stinky Lulu has to say about 16 plays and 30 days and then some, aka the stuff I saw in June 2016. As always, thanks so much for listening. And if you have something you would like to say to Stinky Lulu, uh, I'm easily found on social media at Stinky Lulu on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you prefer email, stinkylulu at gmail.com. I'm, I'm interested. I expect I'll likely be continuing to experiment with formats. So if there's something you really like, or especially if there's something you really hate, please do consider letting me know. At, because it really, if you've got feedback or suggestions or questions or requests, I am always interested to hear what you have to say about what Stinky Lulu said. And in the meantime, if you want to keep up with the shows I'm seeing, uh, do follow me on Instagram. Generally, I post a picture of a program of every show I see. And if you can also find me at uh, a new website that I find quite useful to log my regular theater going. Uh, it's called showscore.com. www.show-score.com. I've taken no advertising. I have no relationship with the company, but I do find it an interesting space to get a read on what's going on. So if you want to keep track of what I'm seeing, uh, you can find me there. July is already shaping up to be an interesting month of theater going. I don't know if it's going to be 16 plays in 30 days this month. I'm not sure whether I'll be doing everything else I'm supposed to be doing right now. I don't know yet whether I'll go back to the old format of one show at a time or if I'll find other ways to do something like I did today. Uh, I do know I'll be going to the theater because, hey, I mean, if not me, then who? At least that's what Stinky Lulu says.